Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to talk about this text in the sermon. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you could look over with me at the uh, Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to talk about that for just a few minutes. Isaiah 9 is this, I mean, it's famous because of the whole wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace uh, text, and how the New Testament applies that to Jesus. But let me talk a little bit about the background of this text, because you really can't understand what's going on here unless you understand what's going on historically behind, but behind this text. Uh, Isaiah 7 uh, through 9 is um, one, it's, it's kind of a unit. It actually goes on beyond that in, in, in Isaiah, but that's, that's all we'll talk about tonight. It's, uh, the background is very much political. It's, uh, it's not problems that Isaiah is having with his uh, guilt feelings or uh, with, you know, he's not having psychological problems. Those are, those are totally important, but the, the problems of Isaiah 7 through 9 are political. They're geopolitical. Uh, specifically, what's going on is, is that Assyria, this is in the uh, late 8th century BC, Assyria, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, is getting bigger and stronger. It's one of the first real uh, military industrial machines. The Assyrian Empire is the first empire in history that devotes most of its resources to military conquest. And they're famous for it. You can go to uh, the British Museum in London today and see huge reliefs that the Assyrian kings made, like basically decorations in their house, glorifying their violence and their military conquest. Well, if you're living uh, in Israel, if you're living in Jerusalem, you know, around 730 BC, this is starting to become a slight concern. But it's not a major concern because there's some gap between you and Assyria geographically. Namely, there's two countries above you. There's the 10 northern tribes that you're related to called Israel. You're Judah. Let's pretend for a minute. You're Judah. They're Israel. The 10 northern tribes. And then uh, next to them is the the nation confusingly named Syria. Not us, Syria. That's the bad guys here, but Syria. Syria and Israel, the 10 northern tribes, are very concerned because Assyria is breathing down their neck. They get a hold of Judah, which is where Isaiah is at, and say to their king, to King Ahaz, Hey, look, you need to help us. The three of us need to gang up on Assyria because they're too powerful. We can't stop them. Ahaz is a little bit like, I I don't know if I want to do that. It seems like a lot of effort and money. And why don't I just wait and see what Assyria does with you guys first? Well, 
uh, Syria and, and Israel say, that'll be too late then. Um, you either side with us or we're going to come down there and we're going to knock Ahaz, the king. We're going to knock you out and put in our own king that will side with us and join forces with us to fight off Assyria. Um, Ahaz freaks out. And what he does is, is he goes into the temple treasury and he takes money out of the temple treasury and he sends it to Assyria, the bad, bad guys, and says, hey, these two guys that you don't like are going to attack me because I'm not fighting against you. Will you attack them and, and defend me? And Assyria, of course, Sennacherib says, yeah, that's great. Send me your money and I will attack them, which he does. Isaiah 7, Isaiah the prophet goes to King Ahaz and says, you just need to chill out. Basically, he says, wait on the Lord. That's the technical uh, theological term. But just relax. Stop doing things in your own power. God is going to take care of Syria and Israel. You don't have to worry about them. In fact, uh, within 10 years, 722 BC, Assyria completely wipes out um, uh, the northern tribes and, and, and Syria as well. It's a project that's done within about 20 years after that. By the time of around 700 BC, they're completely gone. But Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you're not going to trust in the Lord, you have to trust in the Lord. He's the only one who can defend you. You cannot worry about all the bad political rulers out there. You have to trust in God. But God will finally defend you. Things are going to get bad, but God will finally defend you. And that's where we, that's where we get to Isaiah 9. And you have this great section here in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Things are bad for you guys, Isaiah is saying. In the future, it will be bad for you. What he's describing here is still out there in the future a bit. God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is your destiny, he's telling Ahaz. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, so now he's talking about Assyria, the yoke of Assyria's burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember the story of Midian being defeated by Gideon. You know, just a few, the 300 soldiers, and they really don't do a lot of fighting. They smash some pottery and wave some torches in the air and blow some trumpets, and then God defeats the Midianites uh, for them. He says, that's going to happen again. I'm going to defeat the bad guys. I'm going I'm to defeat the Assyrians. And you're not going to have to do anything. In fact, he says in verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You won't need any of the military equipment. You can just go ahead and burn it. You're not going to need it because I'm going to defend you. I'm going to take care of you. And the way he describes this is this, this political oppression that you're under, the, the constant threat that you are going to be destroyed by your political enemies he describes that in verse 4 as the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. It's like having a staff across your back. This constant threat is like being beaten across the back with a shoulder. The staff on the shoulder never, ever goes away, right? There's always political forces that are against you. That's just a fact. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. Whether, it's, whether you're living in Judah and the, 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 the staff on your back is the Assyrians. Or you're the Assyrians, and you know you got to watch the Babylonians on the other side of Mesopotamia because they're getting stronger, and in 100 years, they're going to do you in. There's always somebody who's got their staff on your back. That's the background. That's what Isaiah's telling Ahaz. You can't get out from under the staff. 
There's always going to be a bad guy. We Americans, we like to pretend like, you know, we are the apostles of liberty. And in many ways, of course, we are one of the great agents for democracy in the world. But honestly, if you talk to anybody who really knows anything about politics, the staff on your shoulder is always there. Like if the, power, if, the part, if the political party that's in power now is not your political party, like you feel the staff, it's heavy upon you. Our country's going down the tubes. If your political party that you like is the one that's in power, you're constantly afraid of the other political party who's out to get you and is trying to depose you and is manipulating and twisting the truth to get you, to, get to, you know, to depose you, to get you out of the way. There's this essay written in 1964 by a guy named Richard Hofstadter called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. It's kind of famous in sociological circles. And when he wrote that, he was kind of taking shots at the cultural right. Uh, most political commentators and sociologists today say it really kind of applies across the spectrum. But his point, even as far back as 1964, was that Americans really, really believe in uh, liberty, but they're constantly paranoid. They're constantly paranoid about the staffs on the shoulders that are out to get them. You can't escape it. Whether you have political agency or you don't, it's always there. Now, maybe one of the solutions would be like if you could get absolute totalitarian political power, then you wouldn't have to worry about that because you would be completely free of all sorts of enemies. But again, you know, Assyria had that and they couldn't like, they couldn't let up for a second because there's always people who are out to get them. So, so think if you were, uh, I mean, just, just as an example, if you were uh, Vladimir Putin right now and you were like the unquestioned locus of authority over one of the largest nations in the world, do you think that he sleeps easily at night even though he has all that power? I guarantee you he doesn't. Whether it's uh, uh, the Wagner group, the Wagner group, which is uh, taking 25,000 soldiers to Moscow to depose him, or any number of groups that are trying to get rid of him and depose him. He's constantly worried about that. Hitler was constantly worried about people who were trying to overthrow You cannot escape the staff of oppression upon your shoulder. It's unavoidable. So what's the solution then? The only solution that we have here, the one that Isaiah poses, is this. God is going to have to do something to take that staff off your shoulder and he's going to have to carry it on his own shoulder, which is what he says down in verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The staff will be removed from your shoulder. The staff of political oppression, the staff of political power will be removed from your shoulder and will be put on his shoulder. He will carry the government completely. And unlike all the Putins of the world and all the Sennacherbs of the world and all the other political powers of the world, this one's going to be different. His is going to be infinitely good and powerful. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Americans are very, very suspicious of the increase of any kind of government. But we can be sure here from Isaiah that this is, Isaiah at least considers this to be an extremely positive thing. The increase of Jesus' government, there will be no end to it. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The staff is taken off of our shoulders and it's placed upon his shoulder. He becomes the king of the universe and he rules over everything. He rules over every political power and every potentate. And he rules over all the nations. 
And this is a good thing. And of course, the way he does it, we're not going to focus on this tonight, but it would be totally remiss of me not to say this. The way he does it counterintuitively is not with an army, not by flexing his muscles, not by putting down all his opponents, but by being put down by his opponents, by being killed, coming back to life, which makes him invincible and undefeatable, and thus he rules over the whole world. Now, there's two ways to interpret this here. And uh, you kind of know where I'm going. Actually, this is the same sermon I preach every single New Year's, uh, uh, every single Christmas Eve. I don't know if anybody notices that. I'm probably the only one who does. But I just use different texts every time. But the, all, the, all the Christmas Eve texts are extremely political. And so what are you going to do? There's two ways that you can take this. One is the wrong way. I'll give you that one first. We can say this is a spiritual government. That Jesus really isn't concerned about politics. That's kind of the secular world business, the natural world. Jesus is concerned about your soul. Jesus wants to rule over your heart. Jesus wants to take away your guilt, the staff of your guilt, the staff of your uneasy conscience. That's true. We're not going to shortchange that, but it's much bigger than that. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it's not the way the Bible works. There is, it's a very, very, uh, again, uh, to to, uh, quote myself from the sermon this morning, uh, it's a very sort of a white person modern way to see the world, that there's a secular side of the world and a religious side of the world. That's not the way the Bible sees it. There's no distinction between the secular and the sacred. There is no difference between the spiritual and the physical. There's no difference between real political powers and mystical, demonic, or angelic powers. They all work together. See the book of Revelation, which we worked through last year, All the political powers that be are actually controlled by spiritual powers on the other side of them who control them. It's just not the way the Bible works. Also, the context here, it's not a spiritual problem. There's actually a foreign army knocking at the gates. It does does Ahaz and uh, uh, the citizens of his country no good to be told, well, this country is going to wipe you out, but at least you'll be free from guilt from your sins. It's not the point. Guilt from sins is is extremely important, but a part of being freed from guilt of sins is being freed from this evil, the evil political oppression that lays upon their shoulders. I always feel weird about this. I know because it's hard for us as Americans to think of like being in a church and talking about stuff like this, but I really have no choice based upon the text but to say this, is that the, the second option is the right one, which is this. Christmas Eve is the announcement of a revolution. It's a revolution in every sense of the word. There might not be tanks. There might not be an actual coup where people are forced out of office. There might not be storming of government buildings or the gathering of armies. There might not be blood on the pavement, unless you think of Jesus' blood on the pavement. But it's it's a revolution nonetheless. All the political powers which tell us, you have to trust us. If you want your life to be better, in, our, in America, in our context. You have to vote me into power. It's really your only hope. And these evil bad guys, you can't listen to them. You have to listen to us talk, and you have to follow us. Jesus is ruling and reigning over those and saying, no, you're trying to be fake messiahs. You're trying to get for yourself worship. You're trying to get for yourself power that only belongs to me. And I don't have time to go into this tonight, But inevitably, when I talk about this, somebody says, well, don't you think it's important to vote? Absolutely, I do. But I don't think, I think it's it's important not to give your hopes to somebody that should only be given to Jesus. It's extremely important. In fact, it would be idolatrous to place your trust in a human being 
that should only be placed in Jesus. That's the message tonight. I mean, this is why, you know, Jensen just read from us Luke 2, and I did preach on Luke 2 last year, and if you remember, which of course you don't. the, the great shadow hanging over this, you know, Linus Van Pelt quotes this in, the, in the, the Peanuts Christmas special. And it's super touching. It's beautiful about the angels and, the, you, you know, and the glory to God in the highest on earth, peace of wisdom. But the, the shadow that hangs over that whole text is the shadow that rears its ugly head right at the beginning. Caesar Augustus. He's demanding that the world pay census to him as a sign that he is the one true Lord. That was one of his titles, Lord. That he is the one true savior. Soter, savior, that was one of his titles. That he is the one true peace bringer. The, the, the bringer of pox, that was one of his titles. And into that is this little baby that Caesar is destined to murder. And Luke tells this story, Jensen read this story to us, and it's this crazy insistence that when the Caesar murders this innocent person, it will be his downfall. That by doing this, by executing, by lynching this innocent construction worker, he will unleash the most powerful, cosmic, political, spiritual, psychological, relational, financial, mental, physical force that the world has ever seen. The power of the infinite God unleashed through the death and resurrection of God himself, who now, since he's risen from the dead, and is risen to God's right hand, rules and reigns over all the political powers in the world who think that they have power, but they're not. They're playing in the sandbox while the one true king rules over them. I don't have time to explain this too. I know they do bad things. If Jesus is really in charge, why do they do bad things? That's a whole other sermon, maybe a whole other sermon series. But just for right now, let's insist that the government sits upon his shoulders. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You get a little taste of this here and there. And I, I, I told you this, again, this is, ba- I told you this is the same sermon I preach every year. But last year, I just uh, gone to a, a concert at the Alton Symphony uh, where Harry plays cello. And some of, you, some of you were there too. I know Debbie was there. And one of my favorite things about this is that it's at Lewis and Clark Community College. And if you've been, it's Hathaway Hall, which is on campus. It seats, I don't know, two or 3,000 people. And it's packed out. And there's this, there's this Christmas carol sing near the end of the concert where the orchestra plays and everybody sings. And each year, last year and this year both, I've been moved to tears because here in the middle of this uh, campus, which is devoted to learning and is, is, is a really fine place, I teach at Lewis and Clark, is two to 3,000 people. And I don't know if they all realize what they're doing, but they all are singing as loud as they can, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And every year I think, how are we allowed to do this? Like, this is revolution. We're saying there's one true king, and he's come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We're insisting that he is the one who brings joy, that he's the one who brings peace, that he's the one who's Lord of all. And I don't know why the authorities still let us get away with it. But if they knew what we were singing, they would stop us because it's a danger to them. And it's a danger to their false messianic pretenses. Not that, not that all politicians are bad. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the claims of Jesus are universal. They're not just about in here. They're about out there. He's taking over the world. It's tonight, Christmas Eve, 
is the announcement of that. Tonight, Christmas Eve, we are being invited to participate in the announcement of the revolution. Let's stand in prayer. Oh God, you make this most holy night to shine with the brightness of the true light. Grant that as we have known the mysteries of that light on earth, we may also come to the fullness of his joys in heaven through the same Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.